This is The Conversation here at Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Gavin Thornton has been the executive director of the Hawaii Appleseed Center for Law and Economic Justice. He's been with that organization for more than a decade now, and he's watched Hawaii's housing and homeless crisis get worse. But he's encouraged that in recent years, policymakers have started taking action to help working families. Here's Thornton talking about the mixed bag of results this session. I'd say that one of the most positive things is we have seen in recent years lawmakers expressing more concern about families that are struggling to make ends meet and taking action to address that issue. So one of the ways that they've done that in the past, in 2017, Hawaii created this thing called the Earned Income Tax Credit, a tax credit for low-income like working families, people that are out there like trying to, trying to work to put food on the table, shelter for their families and just not earning enough. And this tax credit is essentially an income supplement. It's a little boost when they file their income taxes at the end of the year. That was created in 2017. We were very excited last year when the legislature made that tax credit permanent and they actually increased the size of it by making it refundable. It just got to more people and it was a more significant amount. So it went from being worth about $20 million to $40 million last year. This year, the highlight of the legislative session for us was that they doubled that credit. So it's now going to put about $80 million into the pockets of struggling working families every year. So I think that's great news. It's also really good to see that there's a lot of attention on this and that you know this tax credit and some other ideas seem to be part of the overall conversation. I know, you know we often say, okay, well, this helps. It maybe takes the edge off. But then, you know, you think, well, okay, is it better to try and help more people with, you know, a modest amount or, or, or be impactful for the folks that are truly needy? And that's where I'd say that we have a lot of work to do and we need to change our perspective. You know, going into session, there was talk of this big budget surplus, and then there would be funding for all these important programs that people need. And at the end of session, we just didn't see that happen in a significant way. I mean, in some ways, like the earned income tax credit, but in other ways, not so much. Another thing that we were talking to legislators about at the beginning of the session was, look, We have had an affordable housing crisis for 50 years. Like we called it an affordable housing crisis 50 years ago, and it's not been getting better. So we need to do something about that. The narrative at the legislature at the beginning of the session was, you know, we're going to have this budget surplus. Like we don't need to find ways to increase revenue so that we can invest more in things like housing and education, stuff that Hawaii residents really need. So one of the big issues that we were pushing this session to provide more funding for affordable housing, which residents desperately need, like we see it all the time, they need funding for affordable housing. So we were pushing this idea of a conveyance tax. It's a tax on the purchase of real estate. It doesn't hit local residents hard when they're like trying to afford housing. It tends to hit folks that are coming in, investors that are buying up properties frequently, especially higher end properties. So they will pay that tax and then it generates revenue that can be used to build affordable housing that can be used for homelessness services. So we were pushing that concept, um, hoping to see that real estate transaction tax increase so that primarily investors, like higher wealth individuals, would right. be paying the into it. The luxury homes, yeah. Right, the luxury homes. And then folks that need housing here, Hawaii residents, Hawaii's people, you know, they'd have more resources for housing affordability. What's your sense as to why that didn't get traction and, and pass? Overall, I just think there's this need for a paradigm shift. So what we heard from legislators at the beginning was, well, we have a surplus, so we don't need to raise revenue. 
And that's what we hear a lot. People don't like taxes. Like, I get it. Um, the reality is, if we want to get away from the last 50 years of affordable housing crisis and, you know, what we keep hearing about over and over about the struggle of working families, we need to change how we do things in a significant way. And that means that just because we don't have some budget emergency doesn't mean that we shouldn't be figuring out how to make better investments, generate the revenue that's really needed to pay for the things that our community cares about and wants. We did see an influx of money you know, during the pandemic, and a lot of those went for social service programs because yeah. that's where the need was great, right? We pulled back from a lot of other things, and that helped. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, in recent years, we've been doing a legislative recap report, and last year's lessons learned were all that federal money that came in, look what we were able to do with that. We invested a billion dollars in affordable housing development, 600 million on Department of Hawaiian Homelands, and then 400 million elsewhere. That can't be a one-off. Like, if we're going to actually make ground on this very difficult problem, we need to be making that kind of investment year after year after year. And as a state, we can't afford to just wait for the feds to do something. Like, we can take action. There are things that we can do so that we can make last year the reality each year going forward, and so that our history of affordable housing crisis, like, stops at some point. That's really what we've got to get to. Like, the headlines in the uh, the paper, you know, with the young man who won uh, uh, the top three slot in American Idol, right? His family had to leave, move away because it was too expensive here, you know, and um, that's sadly something that more families are thinking about. So many families and so many families that have been here for generations. So we're, we're talking to folks on Kauai right now. There's an affordable housing complex that they recently increased their rents. Uh, the affordability restrictions expired. They increased their rents significantly. Most of the residents that had been there for a long time have now moved. I've heard that there's like one remaining person that's been there for a while that's about to be evicted. And it's folks that are like coming in, working remotely, that can afford to live there. And so that displacement is it's just really sad for the people that, you know, call Hawaii home and have for so long. You know, and with rail starting to come online, there's been lots of talk about TOD, transit-oriented development, and the fact that, yeah, you could see high-rises all along the route at some point, someday, and hopefully some of that will be housing, affordable housing, since the state owns a lot of that land. But I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think it's an interesting question to ask. If we had invested the money that we spent on the rail just directly into housing— what would that look like? Like, what would have happened? I know that's not a totally fair question because the federal funding and stuff. But as far as I understand it, when, when rail was proposed and being debated, affordable housing, the creation of affordable housing along the rail line was, like, if not the key selling point, it was a major one. And there's no guarantee that that's going to happen. Like, that is not going to happen if we just sit back and build rail. Like, it, other things need to happen. We need to make investments to ensure that affordable housing is, in fact, built there. Right. Whether that's part of Halava Valley by the Aloha Stadium or somewhere else along the route. Yeah. I mean, we've yeah. got to start now. And we've got to figure out a way to pay for it. Like, it's not just going to come, yeah, come out of the heaven. sky. Right. <laughs> right. That's not going to happen. So, you know, that's never the fun conversation. Again, people don't love taxes, don't like to talk about them. But we need to figure out how are we going to make these investments that allow our people to stay and live and work and thrive here. We, we had a long list of legislative priorities around the housing space, labor wage issues, tax structure, food security, like hunger issues, and really like one that earned income tax credit passed. But I would say the most important thing for us is this overall concept of we need to radically shift how we think about investing in our community and our people in Hawaii. 
And so that means a significant departure from the status quo and what we've been doing and what has led us here over the last 50 years to make sure that we can make the types of investments that will create housing affordability, that will provide for strong education so that our young people have the capability to help Hawaii thrive, like all those things. It's really big picture stuff. What is it that pings you when you drive around and see the homeless out you know, on the streets and, and hear stories about people who are just really struggling to raise their families? We think of housing generally as something that you we're okay with the fact that not everybody has it. Like we've come to accept seeing people who are houseless on the streets and just like drive by, avert the eyes or whatever we do. And we've just come to accept like this is the way things are. That's not the way things are everywhere. It doesn't need to be that way. We should feel really, really uncomfortable about that more so than we currently do. We shouldn't accept it. We just shouldn't. And so just changing that that shift in thinking, which is hard to do because we've lived with it for so long, and, it, and it's not unusual in the United States either. We're not unique. But we need to shift that thinking. That was Hawaii Appleseeds Gavin Thornton talking to us about his take on the gains made this session for working families. Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, host of The Body Show. Each week we do our best to provide you with up-to-date medical information from our local experts that might help you or someone you love know more about the world of medicine. Join us today for our latest episode at 6.30 right here on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Queen's Health System, committed to caring for the community at its hospitals and clinics. Learn more at queens.org. Reality Check with Honolulu Civil Beat today looks at zoning laws, which could be hindering efforts to develop needed housing. Reporter Marina Riker joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, and you took a deep dive with Maui. Uh, so what's the snapshot over there? Yeah, so uh, in essence, um, our zoning code or the foundation of it is uh, very, very old. It, it stretches back all the way to 1960. And we actually have some um, zoning laws still on the books from the 50s uh, prior to statehood. So uh, basically, our community is vastly different than it was back then. And there have been efforts over the years to try to overhaul our zoning code to make things a little bit more modern and to actually meet the needs of our community today. So this redo is long overdue. (laughs) And uh, what seems to be hindering the progress? Yeah, so um, unfortunately, I actually wasn't able to get a hold of someone in the county. We tried requesting comment, um, but we didn't hear back. Um, But there is an update that is underway. It's a massive, massive project, so it does take several years. Um, Right now, the project's website says that it should be wrapping up in 2026. There may be some release in sight for folks soon, but that project is currently undergoing. Well, you know, there are, like you mentioned, sections in the law that just really need to be updated because, you know, our needs have changed over the many decades. Very true. Yeah. And and I mean, in in my story, I actually I um, of course, this this poses major barriers to the construction of affordable housing 
and communities that are walkable where you can uh, like walk to work instead of having to drive all the way across the island to get to your workplace. But it also, it has implications for other types of de- development. Like for example, I, I zeroed in on a, on a really cool project to build what will be uh, Maui's only, or sorry, Hawaii's only sea turtle hospital and coral nursery that would house visiting scientists from all across the world here in Ma'alaya. Um, but the place where the nonprofit wanted to build that, um, that center um, has really antiquated zoning. We're just on a quarter acre parcel. There were three different types of zoning, including some one section of the parcel that had no zoning at all. So that ends up basically kind of posing a barrier because it can take a lot longer for these projects because they have to go through the rezoning process. So this does just kind of add different layers of complexity and bureaucracy that can make it much harder for projects to get going. Yeah, so uh, I guess we'll see then, you know, how this uh, turtle hospital uh, can navigate forward. Um, But yeah, you know, I know the other counties are also looking at, uh, you know, how they can best update their, uh, the rules on the books, you know, just to make... uh, things happen because, you know, like I said, we were, we're in a housing crisis and if there uh, is a shortage of inventory, we need to step it up. Yeah, and, and, and on Maui, actually, um, our county um, hired a consultant to create a plan to build 5,000 affordable homes uh, within five years. That plan was uh, finished and published in 2021 and actually the top policy priority of that plan was that Maui needed to update its zoning to make it easier. Um, They actually called it affordability by design because you're allowing property owners to build different types of homes like tiny homes or cottages or apartments that that are able to actually like meet our community's needs versus kind of the sprawling subdivisions of single family homes where people have to drive to work and um, that really isn't kind of as conducive for what they call um, affordability by design. Right. So let's look at the barriers and figure out how we can take them down. Uh, but thank you so much, Marina. Thank you so much for having me. We've been talking to Marina Riker. You can check out her story on civilbeat.org. Today on The Daily, as Governor Ron DeSantis is expected to enter the 2024 Republican presidential race, he's polling well below former President Donald Trump. Trump's nomination has started to feel almost inevitable. I'm Michael Bavaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for The Conversation comes from Skog Rasmussen, LLC. Designing solutions for community engagement, project strategy, government relations, and grants services. Learn more at skograsmussen.com. They come from all walks of life. This month, the Ellis Island Society honored 94 Americans whose contributions have shaped the story of our nation. Among them are two Hawaii residents, Hawaii National Bank Chairman Warren Luke and classical pianist Ginny Tu. Today, we hear from Ginny Tu, whose immigrant story and special music gift touched many hearts over the years. In 2014, she was awarded the Monsignor Charles A. Kikumanu Award for her work helping with causes near and dear to her heart. Kiki, Kapuna, and Animals. In receiving the Ellis
Ellis Island Award, Ginny Teo now joins the company of presidents and CEOs and leaders in the athletic and entertainment fields whose philanthropic work has helped to elevate others and to strengthen our country. You can't help but get a big lump in your throat, honestly. Even now when I think of it, you know, when you think of the history and what Ellis Island means to so many people throughout the world and then to this country, you know, because they came looking for a better life and, you know, being able to have the opportunity to realize their dreams. You know, I mean, it's just chicken skin, really. Uh, I don't think I expected really to, I mean, I knew, of course, it was going to be a fabulous once in a lifetime experience. But when you're there and you actually feel it and sense it, you know, the meaning of it, and you get on the ferry from New York, I mean, from the city, you know, and from our hotel, and then you get off on, on Ellis Island and you s- just, and you see the Statue of Liberty. It was, it was really, really uh, moving, really moving. You know, and, and to read the inscription, right? Give me your tired, your poor. And, and, and when <sighs> you think that, you know, the theme is immigration works for America. And, yeah. and, and so just that powerful message and the powerful symbol uh, for all of us. And, you know, we are a, a diverse country. Absolutely. We, this country would not be really what it is without these uh, hardworking immigrants who came, our forefathers, you know, uh, and to hear all these people, all the honorees, all of them uh, so uh, strong in our communities, so with their CEOs of hospitals and a Mayo, you know, Mayo Clinic. Uh, there's just so many different ones, business people, uh, people who have who teach, who have established different, uh, you know, foundations and things like that to give back. But to hear them speak about their grandparents and their parents, and you could it resonated because so many of us could relate to that, and you could sense that even though it was years ago, decades ago but they still feel it, they still live it because it was told to them by their grandparents and their parents. And so it still holds so much meaning for them as they succeed now in this country. They don't, rem- they don't forget the, you know, how they, c- they came to be able to do that, right. the sacrifices I mean- that were made. And, and they probably came from very humble beginnings in yes. another country and to know that they came here for a better life and, and they have succeeded and made something of themselves yes. and now are in a position to give back. And they want to give back, exactly. because And that's the way it should be. You know, I do really believe in the noblesse oblige to whom much is given, much is expected, and rightfully so. Because I really believe, Catherine, that Nothing is ours. Nothing. Everything is, we're stewards of all that we have, whether it's talent or money or, you know, everything, really. We, we're blessed, and we should want to give back. I've always loved that motto and, and yeah. just felt that the fact that we have these awards, Monsignor Kekamano Awards, that, you know, we celebrate the people in our community who do give back. They have achieved and, and have this need to raise others up. Exactly. And I really feel, Catherine, that there's no greater joy, really, because people confuse, I think, often confuse pleasure with joy and peace and satisfaction because money can buy you pleasure. That is true, but it is fleeting. And that's why we're always looking for the next thing, right? But whereas if you're helping other people, that kind of satisfaction is so deep and so meaningful that it's, it's, it's very different from you know just having 
uh, material pleasures. Well, anyone who has heard and seen you play the piano <laughs> knows that that is your passion and that you have been able to share that gift with so many people, you know, when you were little and that, you know, that whole story, it, it's just amazing. So talk about, about that love that you have for music. You know, when I was three and a half years old, my dad played the piano, had a piano at home, but he was a businessman, so that he that wasn't a, his profession. But he always loved music, especially the piano. So he had the piano, but he would always lock it because there were seven of us at that time. The last two were born in this country. So we're little, right? I'm three and a half. Uh, so he locked the piano because he didn't want all of us banging on it with sticky fingers, eating candies, whatever, right? So I never really got to the piano until one day he forgot to lock it. He was running out and our mother heard me playing. And she was the one who told him when he came home, she said, I think you need to listen to her because I hear something I'm I, because I was really trying to duplicate I wasn't banging for fun I was serious even at three and a half I was trying to duplicate what I heard him playing and picking out the notes you know and so he did he sp- tried to show me and everything he showed me of course my fingers were tiny tiny right I'm three and a half everything he showed me I would just play whatever he played I would come back and play so then he realized that he could teach me and so he started teaching me and then of course when I was five years old a friend of ours was visiting an American friend and then made a tape of my playing sent it to that's how it all started sent it to his friend who had a radio show actually a daily radio show out of Chicago and he wanted me on his show so he brought me at five years old and my parents and they thought you know two weeks that was the whole plan just to go for two weeks my dad still had his business to go back to the other six were still at home with grandma and auntie and uh, but then and we would have gone home probably but then Ed Sullivan heard about me when he read and things you know child prodigy right so then he had me on his show and then we were here well not in Hawaii but on the mainland for a year and my mom was miserable, so homesick for the other six children. And uh, because then I was on all the different shows, Tonight Show, Perry Como, Andy Williams, Danny Thomas, so many. And we didn't, never went home. So then my dad realized we weren't going home soon and had grandmother and auntie bring the other six children. <laughs> So that's how it all came about. I mean, it was not planned, at least not in our minds. It was God's plan, obviously, but uh, it wasn't planned. But it was that love for music that was able to take you places. Exactly. So you're you're in a position now to give back. So grateful. So very grateful, really. It's a gift because, you know, I don't read music. I hear it. I play by ear. And it truly is a gift from God. And that's why I'm so grateful. And I'm always ready. Anytime somebody wants me to play church or whatever, I'm, ha- I'm ready to go, you know, and I'm happy to do it uh, because it is a gift. I realize that. My dad made that very clear to us when we were small, that this is a gift and we need to work on it and share it. Uh, and now I've discovered animals. <laughs> that's another <laughs> yes, and that's another way you give back. Definitely, I you know when I realize how how helpless these animals are, how much they need, how vulnerable they are, how innocent they are. They don't get to make choices. They have to live with the choices we make for them. And so now I'm very involved with our humane society. I'm on the board as well as of our symphony, and also of the UH Foundation. Uh, board of trustees and you know I love uh, serving on all those boards wonderful people great mission you know and uh, much needed so as you've moved through these different circles in your life I don't know do you have any advice either to parents or anyone out there listening you know who is hopeful but maybe doesn't have the confidence yet what would you tell them you know I would say to find what you're gifted with because I do believe that we all have uh, God-given gifts and then but at the same time you have to be realistic also because until for everyone that you hear every artist every musician that you hear that is successful there are many that are equally talented 
that haven't had the opportunity or the chance yet, you know, to to be successful. So I think you have to also make sure you can pay the bills, <laughs> you know, and uh, but follow definitely. And it takes hard work. I mean, even though I could play the piano at three and a half, I was practicing. My dad was very strict, and I was practicing four hours a day at four or five years old. So it's, you know, even though you have it, it does take commitment for sure. I think if you talk to any, uh, whether it's an athlete or musician or a singer, any, you know, artist, if they want to hone their skills, it does take time and effort. And you can't just, even though you have the gift, you can't just think you're, you can do it without putting in any uh, any effort. You have helped so many others. You know, you've, you've done work with the elderly, I believe, and then yes. also with the, the orphans and yes, underserved the or- yes. children. You know, yes, I've been supporting for over 40 years. Yeah. I've been supporting these uh, th- through World Vision or, uh, you know, it's it's just, I just feel for those really that have no voice. And that's why it includes the animals for sure. What I found really interesting, you know, in reading about the Ellis Island Honors, the fact that it covers a broad spectrum of people, you know, it's folks in the arts and politics. Yes. And that's what, to me, that's, that's, it's so meaningful because it does take all of this. People don't realize, you know, like music, sure, it's, it's entertaining. We love it. We enjoy it. But it's much more than that. Catherine, it, it's healing, it's therapeutic, it brings people together. You know, something we need so much of, especially nowadays. When I traveled and performed in other countries, I didn't speak their language, they didn't speak much English, but once I started playing, everybody, we were united. You know, and if you notice, Somebody who can't even sing, but if they're humming a tune, it might be out of key, or if they're whistling, they are smiling. They are in a good place. So music is very important, not just for the ears, but for the soul and the spirit. And so I feel that's why I think music is so important. People, you know, from all walks of life were being honored, and then those that are artists to heal the spirit, right? Um, so it's it's really it was very uh, very meaningful, very eye opening, very touching. Yeah, sure was a yeah night to remember for sure. Yeah, but thank you so yeah. much for coming down and talking with us. Thank you, my pleasure, Catherine. Thank yeah. you. That was Ginny Tiu, who, along with National Bank Chairman Warren Luke, were awarded the Ellis Island Medal of Honor, and they shared their family's immigrant stories at a gala in New York earlier this month. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at mobi.com. This Tuesday at 8 p.m., the Hawaii Symphony lights up HBR2's airwaves with guest conductor Dane Lamb and cellist Sterling Elliott. Performing Mahler's Blumina, Popper's Hungarian Rhapsody, Symphony No. 2 by Brahms, and much more. That's 8 p.m. Tuesday on HBR2, your home for classical music, right after evening concert. Sponsored by Honolulu Financial Partners. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org.
this morning we have spam on our minds. HBR's culture and arts reporter Cassie Ordonio joins us today. And Cassie, you were able to attend the Spam Jam in Waikiki last month. This was my first time going to Spam Jam, and I've never seen so many people congregating just for Cantam. Um, but it, it was very interesting to see. There was more than 25,000 people who attended. And talking to um, Barbara Campbell, who um, is one of the co-founders of um, Spam Jam in Waikiki, she said there were 31 people from 31 states who came there. That's actually pretty phenomenal, too, because you would think of Spam as like a Hawaii culture or even just us being Chamorro. It's like a Chamorro thing. That's our delicacy. But seeing people from the continent coming in and participating in this one day event, it was huge. Well, it cracked me up because you shared that you ate so much Spam as a kid that you don't really <laughs> like it so much anymore. To, so you actually went to this Spam festival for the first time. It It, it made me twitch a little bit but at the same time I totally understand I'm not going to knock it because my fiance eats spam almost every day okay. and trying to encourage him to also eat more vegetables <laughs> but um, it's become such a delicacy here you have um, spam gem serving uh, delicacies like musubi or even Monte Cristo and for those who don't know what Monte Cristo is it's this fried spam and cheese sandwich drizzled in honey and butter I've never seen it before it kind of looked like a dessert I haven't tried it but Blaze seemed to like it <laughs> my fiance but it was a it was a very really, uh, popular event and I got to talk to uh, several people who are visitors and locals attending the event and I asked them you know what is it about spam that you can't get enough of and the answers vary some people say they like spam because their grandma used to make Simon for them growing up and they would throw spam in there some people say that it's affordable and if you're working full-time it's the easiest thing to make you fry spam put eggs and rice gets you full throughout the day and um, but not everyone eats spam. I actually just talked to a local chef um, from Aloha Beer Co. He's actually from Modesto, California. And here's what he had to say about spam. If we were like in the valley, we would be like, you know, so many taco trucks around or something like that. That would be like our thing. You know what I mean? Just go in and get like that or just like quick stuff, like, you know, tri-tip or something like that, like sandwiches or something. That was like more like our staple. Yeah, spam is definitely like that what it is to California, what like tacos are to California is like definitely like that is what, you know, Hawaii's version of like their national dish, definitely. You don't see a lot of um, Latino food out here, so I was a little bit sad hearing about that. <laughs> but for spam, it's just evolved over the years. It, it was this... Um, uh, World War II ration during that time. It also helped during the tail end of the Great Depression because spam is just so affordable. Um, I talked to Scott Gamble of LH Company, who's the longtime broker of um, Hormel Foods, who sell, who are the the owners of spam and sell spam. And he basically said spam is just so affordable that you know folks can buy it for three dollars and nineteen cents on the shelf, and then some, like Foodland, for example, some uh, retailers will sell it for two dollars and nineteen cents just to promote it. So it's very affordable. And just to kind of cap on that, um, Hawaii consumers they consume seven million cans of spam per year. That's five five cans per person. So that's actually enough to feed a family, or it's basically a lot if you're just consuming it for yourself but still that's um that's a ration for you yeah it, it's really interesting uh you know i mean i i get uh i jones for you know fried spam and rice sometimes i just crave it and and, and that that does it for me i'm still traumatized from when i had really bad monopoa okay and so i looked at pork very differently um but um just like any other food um if you eat too much of it, it's not the healthiest for you. Um, and I've talked to health experts about it. And um, Loich from the University of Hawaii, he says that spam should not be banned, but at least like consumed more as a delicacy rather than eating it every day. But that's very challenging for those who are economically disadvantaged, for example, where you can only afford spam. Just like on the continent, like you have like the dollar store, you have um, McDonald's who are selling like um, like dollar menu items. and even like for McDonald's, like sometimes you consume it every day, it's not the healthiest for you. And so uh, what do the health experts say? It actually can lead to um, 
some underlying health concerns like cancers or diabetes, for example, or like um, like heart disease. So Spam has six ingredients. It has pork, salt, water, potato starch, sugar, and sodium nitrate. And it's the nitrate that health experts are concerned about. And I know nitrate is mostly found in like vegetables and waters, for example, but they put nitrate in like um, these like these canned foods. And the nitrates is the chemical compound that helps canned meat, for example, expand their shelf life. And that's why um, it was like very popular, not very popular, but it was used as a World War II ration because it helped, you know, like GIs like get through the day because that's all you could do is ration with these pork meat. But um, um, health, 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 health experts, sorry, are um, cautioning consumers to not eat processed meat every day. And um, Lloyd Schlemmer-Shand um, from the UH Cancer Research Center had this to say. But even so, they are now found only on small, small amounts. Uh, you know, this, they can still react in the body to create carcinogens. And even so, nitrites is banned. If you eat uh, nitrates, they might be transforming to nitrites in your body, in your intestines. So even though he said that spam and other processed meat shouldn't be banned, it should be treated more as a delicacy rather than an everyday thing. In moderation. Yeah, I, I have a, a, a quick spam story to share. My brother-in-law entered a spam contest, won first prize, first class tickets from Guam to the Hormel plant, uh, $1,000 shopping spree at America's mall. So, yeah, it's pretty interesting. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much, Cassie. Thank you. We have been talking to HBR's Cassie Ordonio about spam culture in the islands. Look for her story on hawaiipublicradio.org. Allied generals were in town this past week to talk about the future of land forces. It was the 10th anniversary of the meeting of Land Forces Pacific. It drew Army top brass and military vendors and kicked off with a throwback to the past. The sport of polo returned to Fort Shafter's Palm Circle. And that's the whistle sounding the end of the chucker at the end of two periods of play. Army black, eight, Army gold. The Royal Palm Enclave is where Army officers live in historic homes, and one of its most famous residents, George Patton, was an avid polo player. When he was a field-grade officer at the time, he was, a, he was actually a lieutenant colonel, and he lived in one of these houses right here on Palm Circle. It was said that Patton was a fierce competitor and was sent off the field in one match for ungentlemanly conduct. Well, the legend has it that after one stinging defeat there, Patton commandeered an airplane and dumped bags of flour on the houses of his opponents. And retired Army medic Alan Ho has long worked with the Hawaii Polo Association. He shares the story of how the sport was resurrected years ago on the historic oval at Fort Shafter. I guess I'm the guilty party. Almost 12 years ago, when General Wierzynski came to Hawaii, I had known General Wozinski when he was a colonel, and he knew of my love for horses and the sport of polo. And, and one day he asked me, he said, why can't we play polo on Palm Circle? Because I know they used to do a lot of equestrian stuff there. And I said, I don't know. And I said, you're the boss. Why, why haven't we done it? And so he made it happen. And so we've done this, not this particular event, but we've done uh, polo matches here for a number of different occasions over the past 11, 12 years. Yeah, because I, I think I might have covered it when you folks yeah, resurrected it way yeah. back. That was just a family day event for the military families. And we reintroduced them to their equine history and legacy. So we had, uh, it was a whole fair. They had lots of horses and kids riding pony rides and we had a polo match and it was kind of like a, a country fair. So tell us about the history of polo here at Palm Circle? Well, I guess probably the history goes back to the very early days when Palm Circle was established. You know, this area is like, what, 120 years old now? 
um, what you see out here, the green grassy area used to be a bivouac area. And it was an area that was used by the, the cavalry uh, to, to ride, exercise and train horses. And uh, our understanding is that polo was played here on occasion. And uh, then I believe either Captain or Major Georgius Patton played polo here. And so this has a very fascinating uh, legacy of not only horses in Hawaii, but the sport of polo, which we in Hawaii ha have been playing since 1880. And it used to be played at Kapi'olani Park. You know, we've got the, the fields up on the North Shore and, and Waimanalo. I mean, you're actively involved in all of it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, in the in the 1920s, the heyday of polo, the modern modern day polo or contemporary polo, Hawaii had three of the largest polo clubs in the country. Fort Shafter had a polo club and uh, Mauna Lua Field had a polo club and Schofield had a polo club. You know, back then, if you were an army officer or a senior NCO, you knew how to ride horses. And that was the natural part of knowing how to ride horses is the sport of polo. Right, I mean, we're talking cavalry yeah. history. Yeah, absolutely. And more, more than cavalry, because back then the army moved on horseback. And so all the troop movements were uh, uh, directed by uh, either officers or senior NCOs on horseback. For me personally, my love of polo didn't come till later in life when I had a, an affinity for horseback riding. But of course, before I came a, became a lawyer, I couldn't afford that, right? Not that I can afford it now, but I subsequently learned that one of my ancestors was in that first group of vaqueros that came from California to teach my Hawaiian ancestors to be cowboys. And then on top of that, I have a third and a fourth great-grandfather who were horse cavalrymen for Queen Victoria in the 1820s. So, you know, that's my excuse. We also talked to polo enthusiast Chris Dawson. His company does contract work with the military, and the sport has given him a platform to talk about his native Hawaiian culture and history. What people may not realize is that we started playing polo in Hawaii seven years before the U.S. during the reign of King David Kalakaua. Kapi'olani Park is a racetrack and a, and a polo field. It's not a, it's not a city park as it is now. And back in the day, horses were such a huge, huge part of Hawaii. I always kind of joke that, you know, today you're an affluent, successful person if you have a Tesla and an iPhone. Well, back in the day, uh, if you had a horse, you were pretty lucky. And so horses have a very unique way of taking us back in time and, and history. It's a very important part of our, our, our culture, our Native Hawaiian and our Hawaii community culture. So being able to, to offer these types of opportunities to showcase horsemanship, polo, in a relationship with the U.S. Army Command is an absolute pleasure. We'll do it every time, anytime asked. And any plans for having polo return to Kapi'olani Park? Oh, that's a great question, Catherine. You know, we were exploring that with Mayor Caldwell, and he really liked the idea because we have, if you will, the resume for moving in horses and putting on events and doing it safely and in a real organized manner. We were set to do that and then COVID hit. That put a big pause. We're always open to the idea of playing polo in Kapi'olani Park, but we're also, the, probably the better idea is just to play polo in Waimanalo where the fields are really well set up. It's close to East Oahu. As you know, Dawson does a lot to support the Hawaiian community. And so we like being there in, in Waimanalo because it's so heavily Hawaiian in that area. So maybe one day Kapi'olani Park, but more than likely look for bigger events to happen at the Waimanalo Polo Fields. This event here at Palm Circle, you've got coverage from the Polo Magazine? Yeah, absolutely. So we're very fortunate. Polo International Magazine is the most exquisite magazine in Polo. It's run by a, a, some friends of mine, a husband and wife team. And for 40 years, they've traveled the world and documented Polo. You're really nobody until you're appeared in that magazine. And fortunately, they've been very helpful in helping me elevate Hawaii in that light. So they flew in all the way from Argentina. We can expect to be featured in one of their next beautiful coffee table books. The other team was from Prince Polo. They're a great video production company out of Argentina. But most importantly, they filmed for ESPN South America. So we wanted to bring in that top tier international 
of media and film media content makers to push it out through their channels and really show the, the relationship of the U.S. Army, its importance here in the Pacific. There's a lot happening in the world. And so this, this conference that they're launching, I heard it was their biggest turnout. Over 2,000 people turned out for this, uh, you know, defense contractors, uh, as well as other militaries. It's fantastic what the opportunities that we're having. Anything so, else you want to say just about, I don't know, folks that maybe know nothing about Polo, but want to find out more? Yeah, I'll tell you, there's something that something I'm having a lot of fun with that my uncle, Alan Ho, shared with me. The Argentines really dominate this sport worldwide. Uh, the best horses, the best players, they're the best. There's no doubt uh, everywhere in the world. The Argentine Open every year is basically the Super Bowl. Well, there's a very special relationship, branding relationship between myself and La Dolphina, which is the greatest winning team of all time. Uh, it's, it's really extraordinary. I think they've won the world championship 18 times. I mean, there's no other athlete I know that just had that kind of a win record, one team that kind of win record. Uh, anyways, long story short, a lot of people are wondering, well, what is the relationship between Hawaii and Argentina, Chris Dawson, Adolfo Cambiasso, uh, Hawaii Polo Life, and La Dolphina? There's all these touch points. And the interesting thing is that the friendship between Hawaii and Argentina goes back 200 years, over 200 years, to King Kamehameha. King Kamehameha was the first sovereign nation to support Argentina's independence from Spain. So right now I have a branding relationship with that team and they wear Hawaii on their leg and they're playing in the Queens Cup right now. They just won the Argentine Open. And when everybody sees Hawaii on their leg, it gives me an opportunity to talk about Hawaii and the kingdom of Hawaii. You'd be surprised how many people I run into on an international level that have no concept that Hawaii was ever a kingdom. They just don't even know it. And so I found that really shocking. And I, I thought, oh, well, I'm gonna use whatever means possible I can to tell that story. The best way possible is I have the best players on the world endorsing the story, representing the brand Hawaii. And that was Chris Dawson, Alan Ho, and former sports broadcaster Russell Shumaoka at a recent polo exhibition match at the Army's historic Palm Circle. We should note in full disclosure that Dawson's company is an underwriter of HPR's Hawaiian Word of the Day. does it for us today. Tomorrow, we continue to hear from the community about what got funded this legislative session. Got feedback for us? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217, and record something. And reminder, you can always find the conversation online on HPR or on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in to catch your podcast. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.